Uh, Cornerstone Bible Church, you guys have made a massive impact on our lives, on my life in ministry, and I thank God for you. Eternity will only bear witness of how much he has used you as a church to encourage us in our work of the gospel, whether it's in the Philippines or whether more recently Czech Republic or in the state of Michigan. Speaking of which, I, bear, I bring greetings from Michigan, our flock there, as they meet together. Uh, like-minded church, if we were closer, we'd fellowship with you often. And I uh, just thank God for causing us to be able to be here this morning together to worship and to honor him and his great word. Uh, my heart's passion, I know, is your heart's passion. In a Psalm 115, verse 1, where the psalmist makes this declaration, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Amen? That's our heartbeat. That's the heartbeat of one who knows and loves God. God, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And in light of that, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, our text together this morning, a wonderful text that resounds with the greatness and glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. And as you turn there, I want to set the stage, as it were, to help you appreciate where we're going to go in this text. I want you to realize something important as we start, that it is vital for us to be awed by things greater than ourselves. Once more, it is vital for us as Christians to be awed by those things, by something much greater than ourselves. We need that desperately as Christians, as God's children, something that's way beyond us. Take, for example, the Grand Canyon. It was about 10 years ago we actually had visited Cornerstone Bible Church then, had a neat time of fellowship with you as a church, and then we got into our car. We went down south to visit a church near Tucson, Arizona. And while we were there, I thought, you know what? As we're driving, making our way down there for hours, I thought, I've got to see the Grand Canyon. I've only heard people tell me about that massive gorge in the earth. I've only seen pictures with my eyes in the National Geographic, but that's not quite the same, is it? And so one early morning, we go out in the van, we head up to the western rim, the observation point of the Grand Canyon. Now, we couldn't withhold, we couldn't contain the expressions in our hearts, stuff that began to flat over our mouths like, wow, unbelievable, incredible. As we looked five miles across this massive canyon, three miles down, and saw the multicolored, massive demonstration of that canyon. You know what? I felt the size of an ant. But it was a wonderful feeling, a profoundly wonderful realization to think and realize that it wasn't just the canyon that was grand. It was the maker of that canyon, a grand God, a glorious God. Church, we need to be blown away by how God who shaped that canyon and everything in this cosmos is far more great and far more glorious than anything that we have seen with our eyes. Yet tragically, the sad reality is that most of us have become far too fixated on ourselves and on our infinitely glorious God. We begin to view ourselves somehow as the center of it all, as it were the center of the universe. We act as if everything revolves around us and exists for us rather than for God himself. You know history You know that for 2,000 years in history, virtually everyone believed that the earth was the center of the solar system. They believed that and they lived that way. Who wouldn't want to think that? That everything revolves around you. And it was in the 16th century that the Polish scientist Nicholas Copernicus, he studied and he proposed that the planets revolved around the sun rather than the earth. And of course he was right. 
you realize that it was on his deathbed that his findings were published. And it was actually, it took over 100 years for people to accept what he had taught. There was much opposition against that. You see, it's hard for us also as Christians not to accept that it is not our glory, but it is God's glory that must stand at the center of it all. It is God and not us. You see, Christian, we exist for God rather than God existing for us. We exist for him. Life is first and life is foremost about God's greatness and not our own greatness. Friends, we can say it this way. If you are at the center rather than God's glory, your life will be without hope, without joy, and without purpose in this world. You'll be just existing day to day, missing the reason for which God puts you on this planet. Yet if you come to deeply understand and grasp how God's glory and not ours must be central to it all, it will change everything about how you live. It'll be transforming in how you go about your days. It will revolutionize your life if you understand and grasp the fact that it's God's glory, not yours. God's glory will give you a reason to get up every morning. His glory will deliver you from the darkest depression that you will ever face in your life. Living for God's glory will bring healing to severed friendships. It will cause your children to obey your parents and your parents to raise your children God's way and not yours. Living aloud for God's glory will cause you husbands to lovingly lead, lovingly lead your wives and you wives to graciously, cheerfully submit to the lead of your husbands. It's God's glory that will drive that. Passionately pursuing the glory of God will also inspire and sustain in your life a commitment that is unwaning to serve the Lord in his church here. And watch this. Beyond all of that, God's glory, living with God's glory as your goal, will show if you are truly headed for heaven and will spend eternity there or not. Well, 1 Peter 4, our text this morning, showcases for us one of the greatest statements ever made about the glory of God in all of the scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 4. I know you're there, but let me give you a backdrop. The, the focus of this entire book, this epistle, is suffering for the will of God. Suffering as a Christian for the will of God. Now let's look at the immediate context right there in 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Peter writes of five individual separate local churches, churches just like your church here. Notice now with me in verse 10 what he's driving at. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is not to do so as, excuse me, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And notice what follows, which we focus on here this morning. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Men and women and children, the first thing you must understand about God's glory is that it is amazing. God's glory is amazing. Peter's reason for what he has just written about serving God in the church and using your spiritual gifts says, so that in all things God may be glorified. That is a driving purpose there. Now we love, as God's people, to sing the old hymn, Amazing Grace, don't we? And we should, because God's grace is amazing. But listen carefully, God's glory is far more amazing 
than his grace. Because God's glory embraces everything about who he is, his love, his power, his wisdom, his holiness, and his eternality. That is all of God, God's glory. God's glory is massive. But what is it? If one of the children after the second hour this morning came up to you and said, what does God's glory mean? How would you define God's glory? What would you say to them? What is God's glory? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kabod, which means heavy in weight or importance. It's seeing something stunning that makes your jaw drop and saying, whoa, that's heavy. And that used to be in the vernacular. I think it's out now, right? That sense of being blown away by some truth that you see in life. Psalm 19, verse 1, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the what? Say the word. The glory of God, the kabod of God. It's heavy, it's overwhelming, it's weighty, it shows God's greatness. This last Saturday, yesterday it was, I got on a bike, a little old mountain bike. We're out in Simi Valley at Sonia's mom's place. And there's this large rocky formation there. The rock, it's called Rocky Peak. Some of you have seen it. I thought it was a lot closer than it turned out to be. I spent three and a half hours trying to get to the top there. Half the time I'm carrying this mountain bike up the side of the hill. I get up to the top there, and it's like, whoa. I could see the entire Simi Valley. I could see the entire San Fernando Valley. It was overwhelming to me. It was a heavy reality that hit my soul. That's the sense of the Old Testament term. In the New Testament, the New Testament word is doxa, from which we get the word doxology, praise to God. Doxa describes the shining manifestation of God's person. It's radiant. It speaks of God's honor, God's renown, and God's fame, his doxa. Putting those two together, kabod and doxa, we can put it this way. God's glory is the stunning radiance of all that he has put on display for those who have eyes to see. God's, God's glory is the stunning radiance of all that God is for all those that have eyes to see it. Now, Peter shows us in our text in 1 Peter 4 just how amazing God's glory is by making this statement. He says, so that in all things God may be glorified. Your website as a church includes that statement on the very first page. It says, to the, glorious, to the, to the praise of the glory of his grace, Ephesians chapter 1. Your goal as a church is God's glory. That's the reason you meet every Sunday morning. But watch now. It has to go beyond that, Christian. It has to go beyond what's on your website and what your goal is for meeting on Sunday mornings. The goal of God for every part of our lives must be so that he gets the glory rather than ourselves. That, friends, is the reason for which God made you and called you to be his people for himself. His glory, not yours. Now, I met Isaiah earlier in the back. I told him I'd be talking about Isaiah this morning. Isaiah is all about the glory of God. The Old Testament prophet is overwhelmed with the greatness of the glory of God. And in Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, he makes a massive statement about the glory of God. God is looking toward the future about what he will do with his people, the Jews. And he's making a statement about that. He says in Isaiah 43, fall if you would. Turn there with me. You've got to see it with your own eyes. It's so good. 43, 6 of Isaiah. 40, chapter 43 and verse 6. God is speaking, and he says exactly what will come in the future to his people, the Jews. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Stop there. That text couldn't be clearer. All those that God has called to be his own, that God has created, that God has made, he has done so. Why? For his glory. For his glory. There are absolutely no exceptions in our lives, Christians. All that we do must not be for our glory, but for God's glory. You know the text, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, is talking about a stronger, weaker brother eating and drinking in terms of what ought to be proper in the church context. The Apostle Paul says in verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to what? To the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God, he says. That word all, all things touches every single area of your life. Your aspirations, your contemplations, and your recreation. Friends, God wants to be glorified in every single thought that you mull over in your minds. God wants to get the glory in your emotions and in your dreams and all that. God wants first place. God even desires to be honored in the food that you eat, in the music that, music that you listen to, in the places that you go, and also in the films and TV shows that you place before your eyes. God says, I want the glory in every single part of that. Listen, you cannot glorify God and think weighty thoughts of him if you choose to be entertained by some movies or medium that uses his name in vain and promotes what dishonors him. He cannot be glorified in that. That does not fit his plan for you. So too, you cannot glorify God in your friendships, in your family, and in your marriage if making yourself look good rather than God is at the center of it all. In other words, if you, if you carry the name Christian, I bless God that most every one of you do, your life must be dominated by pursuing what showcases God and not you. Now this is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. This is where we live out what truly is inside. We answer the question, who gets the glory, hundreds of times every day, perhaps thousands of times every day. The way we think of ourselves, the way we take care of our bodies, the way that we dress, how we serve in the church, and every other decision we make ultimately flows from one of two things. Is it for my pleasure or am I seeking God's pleasure in this? Think about it. Every single sin in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation has one common theme. What's at the heart of it all? Man seeking glory for himself. Man seeking pleasure for himself rather than for God. That is why Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. That is why the Jewish nation turned their back on God. And that's the reason why most all of humanity chooses to live apart from God. Refusing to glorify God, we seek glory for ourselves in sin. You see, you could be an atheist, you could be an agnostic, you could be a church-going person all of your life. But what you have in common with every single person sitting here this morning is this. Your and my propensity is to seek self-glory, to live for ourselves. And that's the way we should understand verses like Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. Listen, your sweetest sin in the closet of your soul may seem fine and feel good to you. 
Yet it is all out rebellion against the God of glory who sees it all. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul illustrates this massive truth for us. He graciously warns all who suppress the truth of the glory of God in exchange for their sin. Look in Romans 1 with me. We won't read it all, but we'll start in verse 21. Look at what it goes wrong, what happens when we reject and jettison the glory of God in exchange for a life filled and driven by sin. Romans 1 verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here it is. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, God does not think lightly of your sinning against his glory. That goes for all immorality, all impurity, and all insolent pride. King Herod in Acts chapter 12 refused to give glory to God. And there we see Luke the writer show the consequences of seeking glory for self rather than for God. Look there with me in Acts chapter 12. And as you do so, let me give a footnote. This is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of evil Herod the Great, who actually was the one who ordered all the Bethlehem babes to be murdered. Well, this Herod in Acts 12 was also extremely vile. He murdered James, the brother of John, and his intention now is to kill the apostle Peter. Take in the amazing report of Herod here, seeking self-deification and the price he paid for that. Beginning in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took a seat on the rostrum, that's a platform, and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And notice what happens to him. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give, the, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. Unbelievable statement here. What happens to this king who refused to give God the glory. God struck him dead. Mark it well, Christian. If you seek the glory of men, you're, you're on a collision course with God. If you seek the glory of men, you're on a collision course with God. It is a dangerous, deadly ambition that ends up in destruction. If you oppose God and his glory, you will lose. You will lose, just like Herod did. For God does not and God cannot allow others to take his glory. We looked in Isaiah earlier, in Isaiah 42, verse 8. God speaks and he says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to graven images. And again in Isaiah 48, verse 11, God says similarly, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. It's so clear. God will not be robbed of his glory. 
You see, God is so absolutely glorious that all that he has made must show forth his glory. That is a purpose for it all. If you know and love and serve Christ this morning, that is the very purpose, may I remind you, for which God saved you. Ephesians chapter 1, look there with me also. Hold your finger in 1 Peter 4. I want to show you three times the Apostle Paul drives home. It's about God's glory and not our own. We'll start in verse 5. We read, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, and there it is, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now drop down to verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's the goal. That's the reason that God has chosen you to be his own, to the praise of his glory. And that's why Paul says it once more. Look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. And there we see it again to the praise of his glory. What's the point of repetition? Dads and moms remind your children several times to do something. It's stress, it's emphasis. So you don't get stressed, right? I'm saying this once, I'm saying it twice. Listen, kid. God says three times to us, the reason we've been chosen by him for salvation is to the praise of his glory. And this is where it comes to us. What this tells us is that if God made you for his own glory which he did, then every day must be lived to the hilt for his glory and not yours. You must live in light of your calling. Now think about your typical week. How do you spend your time, your energies, and your talents and your resources? How do you use those? How about the preoccupations of your thought life? Ask yourself right now with me, in all these things, does the attention go to God or does it go to me? If it goes to yourself, then you are merely existing but not living the life that God has given you to live out in this world. Yet, if you are moment by moment choosing to show forth his glory, not yours, you will find yourself smacked in the center of God's will, giving glory to him as he has prepared you to do. You're living for his purpose in the center of his will if you're pointing to him rather than yourself in all that you do. God's glory, Christian, is not only amazing, it is also approachable. God's glory is approachable. Number two, how is it possible for sinners like ourselves to bring glory to God? As Christians, we still sin, don't we? What can keep us from self-preoccupation? My desires, my wants, my longings, my, my, my. What can rescue you from loving to think about and talk about yourself rather than about God? What can spare you from a shallow life of drawing people's attention to yourself rather than to your Savior? Peter tells us in our text in verse 11, look there again. So that in all things, God may be glorified. And look at those next three words. They're pivotal. Through Jesus Christ. There it is. Don't miss this for your life, Christian. Lots of people are trying to please and glorify God 
their way, their way. I love engaging in conversation with strangers that God brings into my life. Two and a half weeks, three weeks ago, we had what we called a mega sale at our church there in Michigan. We had over a thousand people that came to buy just a bunch of junk, okay? Our goal of that sale is to share the gospel with every single person that comes, at least to give them something in their hand they can walk away with that tells them about Christ. We talk to people from all kinds of backgrounds, every kind of religious background you can imagine. With some with whom we spoke, they went to Mass every Sunday. Others went to church. Others said their prayers regularly. Others read religious books and tried to be kind and moral in their lives. Listen, all those systems sound so good to one who truly doesn't know God. It sounds acceptable. You just be good and try your thing, and God will accept you. But the problem is this, in all of those good deeds in the world, all the things a person could put together, those are an affront to the glory of God. They offend God. If a person tries to come to him apart from Jesus Christ. You know the text well. Christ unmistakably declared to the lost, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle Peter said similarly, rather Paul, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Know there are not many ways to God as there are many roads to Rome. And know you cannot make your own way and get to God. And listen, Christian, you know that, but let me tell you why. Christ alone is the way because he is the embodiment of the glory of God. He shows the glory of God to humanity. Christ brings God to us in himself. In John 1 verse 14, the writer there powerfully declares, and the word became flesh and tabernacle or dwelled among us, and we beheld the glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see Christ, you see God and his glory. The Lord Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God that came to this world. Now, several chapters later in John chapter 5, verse 44, Christ told the glory-hungry Pharisees, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? What is Christ saying there? He cannot be saying they should try to get glory for themselves from God. We just saw from Isaiah's words that God will not share his glory with another. Then what is Christ saying? Glory that is from the one and only God that he tells them to be seeking. It is Christ himself. Christ is God's glory that shows us God. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, our Lord shows how the glory he shared with the Father, he has revealed to us as God's children. John 17, 5, and follow closely. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then farther down in John 17, in verse 22, Christ follows with an astounding statement in his prayer. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. What is it that our Lord makes known and gives to everyone who follows him? It is God's glory glory revealed in himself. You see, it sounds strange now. Sharing in this glory. 
Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to believers as those that are readers. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Powerful, powerful statement that the Apostle Paul is making here. What is he saying? He's saying the same God who said light shall come out of darkness and spoke this world into existence is the one who has spoken in our souls through his son, his glorious son. We've all seen spectacular sunrises and sunsets. In fact, you guys take advantage of that. On the coast, the ocean. We don't have an emission like you do here. You stand there and see a, a ray of sun flying past you at 186,000 miles per second. Have you ever wondered how long does it take that ray of sun to leave the sun and hit you here on earth? I'll do the math for you. It's eight minutes. Eight minutes. But listen, God's work in transforming a heart is far faster and far more powerful than any ray of sun could ever be. For in a moment of time, God takes a sinner who turns from sin to himself and he invades his life with his glorious son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he does that, he floods that individual with a personal knowledge of his glory in himself. He makes us at that point of redemption and regeneration partakers of his divine and glorious nature. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Child of God, never forget this. The reason God chose you for himself is not about you first and foremost. It's about himself and his glory. He's at the center. And that is why in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul drives this home and he says this. It was for this he called you through our gospel. Why, Paul? That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were called to the gospel that you might gain the glory of your Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the great news. Fellow believers, you don't have to wait to heaven to get the glory of Christ. It's not a future thing that God says, one day I'll give you. You gain the glory of the Lord when God gives you his son at salvation. When he turns you around and makes you his follower. What that means is this. If you are a saved child of God, then you need not to cry out to God to give you something more. He's already shown the glorious power of his son in your life. He's already had mercy on your soul. If, however, you if those of you this morning have not any here, one that doesn't know Christ, hasn't turned from sin, you cannot share in any way in the glory of his son in your life. Your job, your duty, your impelling need is to call out to Christ for mercy on your soul. Those of you that personally know him this morning must cherish the glory of Christ by walking in close fellowship with him every day of your life. I concur that John Piper is spot on with the statement that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I would add to that that the only way we can be most satisfied in God is by delighting in Christ, his glorious son, throughout every day of our lives. You all know a week and a half ago, just this last week, Robert Williams, who could make the entire world laugh at his comical routines, could not find a reason to live and was discovered hung by a belt after committing suicide. Listen, only God can give a driving purpose and fill the soul with satisfaction and that only happens in his glorious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, when you wake up in the morning, 
Let your heart be overwhelmed with the reality that you can live out that day for God's glory by treasuring your friendship with Christ, by treasuring Christ. Therefore, make the first thought of your day and the last thought before you lay your head on your pillow at night, oh God, God, thank you for satisfying my, satisfying my soul with your glorious son. Perhaps you're saying to yourself this morning, but I just don't feel that way. Great thoughts of Christ's glory don't enthrall my heart. I don't sense that. Let me show you how to get there if you know and love Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll come back to 1 Peter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us what we need to do to treasure and enjoy daily the delight of Christ our Savior. How we get there. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, there it is, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. What is the mirror there? The mirror is the word of God. It's the Bible you hold in your hands. And what is, it, what is it that shows us in the mirror of his word? What does the mirror of the word show us? What does it declare to us that is so glorious? It's Christ our Savior. It's the Lord. He is reflected. He is mirrored through every page of scripture. Christ shows us the greatness and sweetness and nearness of God in himself. And as he does that, we are transformed into his likeness day after day from one stage of glory to the next. So that tells us, Christian, we never go beyond this. We never graduate from a daily desperate need to abide in Christ by getting into his word and finding our souls satisfied with the greatness of the glory of Christ. Don't ever leave that. Don't ever leave that behind. Elders, pastor, every one of us, we need to bathe ourselves daily in the word of God and have our souls made more like Christ. God's glory is amazing. God's glory is approachable through Christ. And thirdly, God's glory always requires a response. God's glory always requires a response. Speaking of Christ back in 1 Peter 4, Peter writes in the final phrase of verse 11. Go back there with me if you're not there. Look at it again. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here we see the apostle Peter launching into a crescendo of praise. It's one of 17 great doxologies in the New Testament. Praise the Lord, he's saying. Why does he say that? Because as soon as Peter mentions Christ's name, he gushes forth in a response of praise to him. He's overwhelmed with who Christ is to him. It's the response of a heart that is astounded by the glory of the Lord and all that that means in his life. It tells us that Christ alone deserves to receive glory. Watch now. And he will. Christ alone deserves to receive the glory eternally and he will. Included there at the end of verse 11, it says, is the word power, kratos. It means Christ's right to govern and rule the universe. That is part of, that's a subset of his glory, his power. Peter says, Christ will receive glory how long? Forever and ever. In other words, it will never stop for all eternity. Let's ask now, how will it look? How will Christ receiving glory forever and ever look for all eternity? Perhaps comes to your mind the cherubim, the seraphim, holy, sinless beings praising God forever at his th before his throne. 
It's them, but it's not just them. Every person ever born will declare Christ's glory eternally. You're saying every person? Every single person, absolutely right. Look in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Including the Christ rejecter that refused to bow the knee to Christ in this world, that individual will glorify God for eternity. Philippians 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does it say at the end there? To the glory of God the Father. You refuse to glorify God in this life, you will glorify him on judgment day. And your eternal punishment being banished from his presence will then be yours for refusing to live for his glory in this world. You will glorify him either in hell forever or in heaven forever. Yet Christian, only imagine what awaits us. Seeing our glorious Savior just as he is, the Christ who died for us with the markings in his arms and his forehead of all he went through with us. It will happen, Christian, before you know it, when we will begin to declare his glory in his physical presence. And I want to show you to you this morning. I want you to see with your own eyes the heavenly scene of which we will partake soon. Revelation 5, verse 11. This will be your experience, Christian, soon in the future. Revelation 5 tells us, verse 11. John writes, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Friends, that's what awaits us in God's presence forever. That is the consummate goal for all the redeemed. We will celebrate and worship and praise the honor and glory of Christ and it will be, once again, forever. It's been said that the most horrid word in all of hell will be forever. And yet the most glorious word in all of heaven will be that same word, forever. It's unending. Oh, don't miss heaven for your life because heaven and hell are unending. You know, we are so earthbound. We must let this sink into our minds a little bit this morning. Our next destination after this life is our final destination. Our next destination after this life is our final destination. For the Christian, arriving in heaven will be like making it through a long, dark, hard winter. Listen, we had the most massive, hard, cold winter in history in Michigan this last winter. I grew up in California here. Then went to the Philippines where it was even hotter. Long winters like it'll never end. But for the Christian, it'll be as if that was just a snap of the finger. And then we will enjoy, as it were, the beauty and warmth of life of a summer that will never end. I hope and pray that your heart, Christian, longs for that day. To be finally home, savoring together with all the saints, fellowship and worship of our glorious Lord and Savior. For those of you that have less of your life left to live than has gone before, yeah, I'm in your company. We feel our life is like the sand going through the fingers. It goes faster and faster and faster as we get older, doesn't it? 
And unless I live to be like my great-grandfather Earl Smith, who lived to be 105, unless I live to be that long, I am on the downside of less than half my life left to live, be lived. Let me tell you this. You getting older rightly ought to think about death more often. That's what God's put us together. And as you think about that, your first thought that follows that thought of death should be the glorious hope of being with Christ forever. Let me tell you this. As you think about those thoughts that come to your mind, be assured that if you have Christ, God will not, cannot let you down the day of your, let you down on the day of your departure from this world. God cannot, he will not forget you. He will not abandon you when he promotes you to glory. Take to heart 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. Paul rejoices in that confidence and he says this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And then he says this, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Oh, what glorious confidence that what awaits us is so much better than what we've gone through in this world. To that great and glorious longing, Peter adds one wonderful word, the last word in verse 11 of 1 Peter 4. Go back there. We often read this word over quickly and we think, okay, what's next? It's a sentence that stands by itself. Amen, he says. Amen. Now, amen in Scripture is not some code word like we use at the end of a prayer time, right? Kind of like I'm signing off now, so whoever wants to pray next. No, amen is a very key term in Scripture. It's so important, it's borrowed from the Hebrew, brought into the New Testament and not changed a bit. It's left the same as it stands. The word amen shows up 129 times in the New Testament. It's important. Our Savior used the word amen over 100 times. Peter uses this, this term here in the sense of truly or let it be. It's a call of commitment to the reader. And friends, that's you. That's you. The call of God is to say with our lips and to show with our lives, amen to God's glory and not ours. Let me ask you, is your heart passion this morning to say with your heart and life, amen to God and his glory and not yours? It's a major shift in our thinking, Christian, and how we go about everything we do. Well, let's, let's work this out in our thinking briefly. How can we take specific steps in living for God's glory rather than our own? Let me look at three specific ways to start with today. Number one, give glory to God, Christian, by constantly confessing your sin. Give glory to God by constantly confessing your sin. Do you remember back in Joshua chapter 7? There's a man named Achan. They go out to battle to Ai. And he stole gold and silver that God had placed under the ban and said, don't touch it. Well, they lined up all the tribes and God exposed that Achan was the culprit. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, we read these words. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Christian, give glory to God by dealing with your sin. You see, God sees it all anyways, doesn't he? He knows everything you think, everything you say, everything you're planning to do. Therefore, as soon as you realize the Spirit of God prompting you, showing you through your conscience this is sin, confess that sin to the Lord. And when you confess that sin to the Lord, who gets the glory? God does. Confessing sin gives God glory. So be at the habit. Be at, make it your regular commitment. God, as you expose sin to my mind, I'll confess it immediately. This is a massive truth in my own Christian life. It's huge. 
Because as I began to say this text out, I realized how often I sin in ways that are so subtle, ways that I justify, ways that I ignore in pointing glory to myself and not to God. It can be so simple as taking a step and beginning to comb my hair in front of a mirror and then off goes a thought about me and not God. A proud thought enters my mind. God has shown me as soon as that thought of pride, whatever the reason is there in my mind, I must confess it to him and give him his rightful glory. By the way, let me encourage you not to spend excessive time in front of the mirror looking at yourself. Ladies, I understand I have two at home, my wife and my daughter. But I, we need to appreciate something. We, we thank God for the beauty that he's given you and the beautification process that is involved in that. But listen, you must guard your thoughts of, in, for, in the sense of glamour and all that goes into your preparations in a way if they ever leave and box God out of that preparation. What does that mean as you prepare yourself and groom yourself, ladies? Thank God. Thank God for his grace in your life and for, for the beauty that he's given you. Don't keep it for yourself. Men, you're not exempt. We can also be so easily enamored with ourselves and our accomplishments, whether on the court, whether on the field, or whether in the work office. And in so doing, we leave God in the shadows. That is sin, and God has called us to confess that as serious sin, that when we confess it, he will get the glory. Number two, Christian, glorify God by clinging closely to Christ. Cling closely to Christ. You see, when you cling closely to Christ, God will bear fruit through your life. John 15, verse 18, Christ says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You glorify God by abiding in the vine and God bearing fruit through you. So cling closely to Christ. Thirdly, glorify God by remembering to thank him for every blessing. Remember to thank God for every single blessing in your life. One day while walking down the, Jerusalem, the road to Jerusalem, Christ met and healed 10 lepers. That we know was a dreaded and incurable disease of that time. Nine of them continued on their way and only one returned to thank Christ. In Luke 17, verse 17, the writer there tells us what Christ says. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Did you catch that? Was no one found to give glory to God except this foreigner? What is he saying is this, when you come back to say thank you for what you have done in my life, we give glory to God. My parents, I recall very clearly growing up, used to tell us as kids, you know, it's proper to take time to thank people for what they do. But the re- that's true, but the reality is oftentimes people aren't all that, deserve, all, all that deserving of being thanked. We realize that. Christian, God always is. And he gets much glory when we, like that leper that was healed, take time to remember what he has done for us and return to him with hearts of praise. Christian, when you remember to praise God for his work in your life, you glorify him. Why? Because you acknowledge the fact that I haven't done this. I haven't gotten here by myself. God has done all this, and therefore God gets all the glory. The Baroque composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, he gave the world some of the most beautiful and some of the most amazing music. Well, at the end of every one of his church compositions, he penned three initials. Those initials were not his own initials, so people would credit him and remember him. 
The three letters in Latin declared the reason for which Bach wrote every one of those pieces. It was SDG, Solo de Gloria. Solo de Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That is why he composed those songs. Christian, may your every thought, your every word, your every deed be motivated and be inspired by the same longing. To God alone be the glory. Would you pray with me? Oh, glorious Father, you are full of glory. And we must confess, Father, that we have so often focused on ourselves, so often be consumed with what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, who we are, our families, our marriages, our kids, our ministries. And yet, Father, we've been distracted and lost sight of you as the glorious one who deserves all the praise, all the glory. Father, you are amazing. And we confess, O oh God, that we are in need of your reminder day after day that you must be the one we live for, that we live in you and for you and must draw people's attention, therefore, to yourself. Oh, Father, thank you for our great Savior that because of him we see your glory, that he is the epitome of your glory. Oh, Father, we pray that you would teach us to treasure that friendship with Christ, to walk with him, to live for him, to make much of him in our lives. And Father, we pray that we'd respond with hearts that are a, an amen to you, that people, when they see us and they hear us talk, would hear and see Christ. Oh, Father, we would beg of you through your spirit to sear these truths to our hearts. Father, to cause us to be those that only long for your will to be done in earth as it is in heaven. Father, may we live in light of the long eternity that awaits us. May we lay up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. Oh, Father, do your work in each heart right now. Expose, Lord, sin. Lord, convict us by your spirit. Father, may we, we be quick to agree with you and to run from those sins that have stolen from your glory and commit ourselves to yielded living before you. Oh, Father, we need you desperately. Father, we realize and admit that apart from you, we can do nothing. And Father, may it be that you would receive much glory, great glory, in the church and in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, may this place be a lighthouse of hope to those around. May there be many that come and see the glory of God put on display that are wooed to you because of what they see manifested. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.